Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. On Sandy Cove Point, about eight miles south of Dublin City, a Martello Tower stands, which is the setting for the opening chapter of James Joyce's masterpiece, Ulysses. A voice within the tower called loudly, Are you up there, Mulligan? I'm coming, Buck Mulligan answered. Joyce stayed in the tower for a few brief days in 1904, at the invitation of Oliver St. John Gogarty. Gogarty later explained in a BBC interview, actually 45 years later, why Joyce left in such a hurry. Joyce's bed was on the right-hand side and mine was on the left. About two in the morning, Trench, whom we didn't know very well, got a, a frightful nightmare, screamed, there's the Black Panther, and produced a Colt revolver and shot off two bullets in the dark, greatly alarming Joyce. He rose solemnly, dressed himself in his faded trousers, pulled on his shirt and his white yachting cap and his tennis shoes, took his ash plant and left the tower and never came back. He was raving all night about a black panther, Stephen said. Where is his gun case? A woeful lunatic, Mulligan said. Were you in a funk? I was, Stephen said with energy and growing fear. Out here in the dark with a man I don't know, raving and moaning to himself about shooting a black panther. You saved men from drowning. I'm not a hero, however. If he stays on here, I am off. In 1962, the building opened as a museum, and one of the people present at that opening was Sylvia Beach, who had published Ulysses in Paris 40 years earlier. Now I'm back here and at this wonderful event that has made me so happy, the opening of the James Joyce's Tower. I'm at the Tower today in the company of Vivian Igo, who was, as a very young woman, curator of the museum for some years, beginning in 1965. I used to sit at a table there. It's still very damp, isn't it? I suppose most of the people you got to know were professors of English literature. And they'd all written books, and I was often looking forward to somebody who had, to meeting somebody who hadn't written a book. <laughs> <laughs> and were you very intimidated by these people, or did you feel you'd lots you could tell them that they didn't know? I felt I'd lots I could tell them that they didn't know. But if, if they were very interested in Joyce, and if they wanted to see any specific place in Dublin... I'd, when I was finished work, I'd always take them after work and show them. Some of the local literati in Dublin in the 60s, I remember, were a bit cynical about the American interest in Joyce. You like know, Patrick Havana? Well, the Patrick Havana yeah. poem, Who Killed James Joyce, more or less making out mm. it was a career move by mm. academics. He came out here as well. Patrick Havana? Oh, he did, yes. And did I he, always, did, was he polite uh, to the academics? Well, he didn't really meet them. He just came out to see me, I think. Oh, why do you think there was so much sardonic commentary about the American academics? Because, after all, in many ways, the Joyce we know is dependent on great books by people like Elman. Well, I think maybe the Americans had read Ulysses and knew a lot more about Joyce than the Irish people. Well, there were a few Irish people like John Garvin and Niall Montgomery and John Ryan. Like, there was a core group of Irish people who were, who were early Joyceans. When I started working here first... I met the librarian from UCD outside. I was walking down by the 40-foot on my way home and I told her I got this great job at the Joyce Tower at £7 a week. I was delighted with myself and she was absolutely disgusted. No surnames, no scandal. And she said, Miss Feel, you are working in a 
sewage museum. Was, now, she, was this a reference to the quality of the literary work or the plumbing here? It's a reference to the quality of the literary work and to James Joyce writing dirty books and she just took the ground from under me. Vivian is one of the great experts on the real people who populate Joyce's books, the citizens of Dublin alive and dead. On our journey today from here to the cemetery in Glasnevin, we're going to meet some of them. There you have Oliver Gogarty, a picture of Oliver Gogarty over there on the wall. And Looking very serious for the author of so many dangerous that, jokes. That could have been later in life, was it? He, looks, he doesn't look young there. Well, no. not as young as when he was in the tower. And a chair there looking a little the worse for wear. That's, yeah, that's the chair actually that Sylvia Beach sat on. There's an old postcard of her sitting on the chair there when she opened the Joyce Tower officially as the Joyce Museum in 1962. Wasn't it very forgiving of her to come? I mean, she had been brave in publishing Ulysses against all odds in 1922 in Paris, this young American woman. But he didn't, Joyce didn't treat her completely well, did he, afterwards? No, he didn't. And then she came over again in 19... No, she initially came here in 1960, her first visit. Hmm. And then she came back in 1962. Vivian, you've performed immense services for all kinds of Joyce scholars, and I know you're acknowledged in hundreds and hundreds of books. But you've also yourself um, put together an immense catalogue detailing the biographies of hundreds of real people who feature in Joyce's Ulysses. And yet the central character, Leopold Bloom, is a sort of fictional creation who's brought into contact with all these real people. Well, Leopold Bloom, he's an amalgamation of some real characters. Svevo in Trieste, Alfred Hunter, and indeed Hunter's wife, is a bit like Molly Bloom. She was a singer also. I found 850 real characters in Ulysses who are real people. But none of them is rendered in the kind of depth that Leopold Bloom is rendered no, in. that's true. Yeah. Somebody said, we're all in it. He put everybody in it that he knew almost. His family, his friends, most of his friends are in it. Would you say he was trying to recreate the world of his father even more than his own world? Yeah. Joyce wouldn't have known them, but he would have heard his father talking about them. So, and, and of course the father's phrases are all through the book. You know, when, when Simon Dedalus says the... Weathers as uncertain as a child's bottom. I mean, the best phrases in the book seem to come from the father, father. don't they? Why did Joyce come to this tower? It's it's a damp and lonely place. What on earth impelled him and Gogarty to occupy this place? Well, I think Joyce came out here because he didn't want to go home to 7 St. Peter's Terrace in Cabra. Once I was in Joyce's home in Cabra Road. St. Peter's Road, Cabra. And it was miserable. The banisters were broken. And the backyard was all, the grass was all blackened out. There was laundry there and a few chickens. And it was a, a very, very miserable home. It was after his mother died that he came out here. You can see the Black Panther over there. Indeed. By the fireplace. It is the kind of place you could have nightmares in, isn't it? I suppose if you, if you did have nightmares, I suppose you could have them here. In Ulysses, it mentions about two men looking over a cliff, watching, and they're waiting for the body of Matthew Kane to be washed up. Two men stood at the verge of the cliff, 
watching. Businessmen, boatmen. She's making for Bullock Harbor. The boatman nodded towards the north of the bay with some disdain. There's five fathoms out there, he said. It'll be swept up that way when the tide comes in about one. It's nine days today. The man that was drowned. A sail veering about the blank bay, waiting for a swollen bundle to bob up, roll over to the sun a puffy face, salt white. Here I am. What is the basis for Paddy Dignam's funeral in Ulysses? Well, actually, um, Paddy Dignam's funeral is based on a real funeral, and it was that of Matthew Kane in July 1904. Hmm. He worked in Dublin Castle for the chief state solicitor, the crown solicitor. Like Paddy Dignam, he'd five children, and he was aged 39. And a lot of people who attended Matthew Kane's funeral also attended Paddy Dignam's funeral. Poor Paddy... I little thought a week ago when I saw him last and he was in his usual health that I'd be driving after him like this. He's gone from us. As decent a little man as ever wore a hat, Mr. Dedalus said. He went very suddenly. Now, he claimed inaccurately, as it turns out, that you can see Bray from here. But in between, of course, there's Dawkey. That's right. In which, in the second episode of Ulysses, Stephen teaches school. That's right. And we're going to move on there now to the Clifton School, or what's left of the building. And the money he made out at the school, remember? Mm-hmm. Gogarty wa- wanted money. He paid for the milk, didn't he? Yes. In, in the book, it sounds as if Mulligan, i.e. Gogarty, yeah. is in a way exploiting Stephen. Yeah, the biographies say, though, that Gogarty paid the rent, yeah. which was eight quid a year. So I think uh, there's a bit of uh, aggro going on there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're now inside Summerfield Lodge in Dawkey, and this is the setting, it seems, of the school teaching episode, episode two of Ulysses, in which Stephen Dedalus doesn't really get full command of his classroom, does he, Vivian? No, he's teaching, uh, the children were about, the boys are about 11 years old, and they came from very well-to-do families. Sergeant was one, wasn't it? Cyril Sergeant. Sergeant and Armstrong and Talbot. And their names kind of reflect the families they came from. The boys seem to have been almost coaching him in the teacher's role. That's right. And then when the boys went out to play hockey, he stayed in behind to help Sergeant with his sums. Sergeant was a bit behind and he kind of felt sorry for him. And Sergeant, I think, was a bit vulnerable like Stephen was himself. He held out his copybook. The word sums was written on the headline. Beneath were sloping figures, and at the foot, a crooked signature with blind loops and a blot. Cyril Sargent, his name and seal. Mr. Deasy told me to write them out all again, he said, and show them to you, sir. Stephen touched the edges of the book. Futility. It's a very interesting scene where Stephen is protective towards little Sargent because it anticipates by hundreds of pages the scene where Leopold Bloom will actually help young Stephen at the climax of the book. That's right. And Stephen was much nicer. He was kind of a different persona when he came up here than he was to... When he was in the tower, he was acting quite strangely. Do you think there was a competitive thing going on with his immediate contemporaries? Was that what gave rise to the aggression? Well, he didn't seem to get on with Gogarty too well. What do you think of the headmaster in the Dawkey School, Garrett Deasy? 
Was he actually based on any real person? Yeah, um, Garrett DC was based on Francis Irwin, who was a staunch Ulster man. He says, and he was he, also he says Ulster will fight and Ulster will be right. Doesn't exactly. He that line? And he was also based on another Ulster man that Joyce knew in Trieste, named Henry Blackwood Price, who was very much interested or involved in eradicating foot and mouth disease. And DC had the same interest. So he'll become the Bullock befriending Bard. <laughs> DC is also a bit, um, well, rather markedly anti-Semitic, isn't he? He's very anti-Semitic. He said that Ireland never let them in, and that, of course, is quite untrue. And most of the subsequent chapters of this great book will be the celebration of a man who at least has Jewishness in his background. He blames everything on women, too. That the Saxon invader came to our shore. And Kitty O'Shea. And, and Kitty O'Shea. And and it, it's a kind of misogynist version of history. A faithless wife first brought the strangers to our shore here. McMurrow's wife and her Lehman O'Rourke, Prince of Breffney. A woman, too, brought Parnell low. And then again, his office was full of curios. Yeah, he had all these old coins, coins and well, apostle yeah, spoons. Yeah. Um, it was almost like he was running a museum rather than a dynamic school. Yes, it? his office looked like a museum. Yeah, and maybe that's what put Joyce off, that the education was so imitative. Um, the boys didn't understand the sums. They just copied them off the board. There's mm. a sense in which I think he's saying the whole colonial system was based on mimicry of approved external models. And you could see why someone who had the immense self-reliance of Joyce, who would go on and write these great mm. books, would actually have contempt for... I mean, Patrick Pierce was calling it a murder machine a few years later, wasn't he? He was. And, and be, again, it just against that whole idea of mm. mimicry and imitation. Well, Joyce didn't stay here too long. I think he was only here for three months. Because, of course, he did, on the continent, teach English... You know, as a Berlitz English language well, teacher to business people. Yeah, well, that was kind of different, wasn't it? You're teaching adults, not yeah children. And it's true. And then maybe he used a lot of the people actually he taught in the Berlitz, didn't he? Yes. He taught Svevo, and Svevo was used as part of Bloom. So, Vivian, we're going to leave the splendours of Dawkey now and head towards the north side of Dublin, isn't that right? Yes, and on the way we'd be passing Seapoint, where... James O'Connor lived and where his wife and four of his daughters were poisoned by toxic mussels. Poor man O'Connor, wife and five children poisoned by mussels here. The sewage. No epic is complete without a visit to the underworld and in Joyce's Ulysses, the underworld is Glasnevin Cemetery at which we've just now arrived. And just going through the main gate, about a couple of hundred yards back, we passed Bengal Terrace. Mr. Power pointed. That's where Childs was murdered, he said. The last house. So it is, Mr. Dedalus said. A gruesome case. Seymour Bush got him off. Murdered his brother, or so they said. The Crown had no evidence, Mr. Power said. Only circumstantial, Martin Cunningham said. That's the maxim of the law. Better for 99 guilty to escape than for one innocent person to be wrongfully condemned. And, and was it believed that Bush had done a good job getting him off? Yeah, well, the case figures very prominently in Ulysses, with Joyce repeating several times that the case was won by eloquence. Hmm. So there's a kind of implication that... He did the murder. The man was lucky, certainly, oh, he to was. escape. Yeah. yeah. 
Why do you think there's so many mentions of lawyers all through Ulysses? I mean, I know you've made a fairly long catalogue of lawyers. Uh, you know, John F. Taylor. It's often in the context of oratory, isn't it, and eloquence? It is. Well, Joyce himself was interested in law. Yeah, and the father hoped and like knew that James was super brilliant. He might have hoped that a successful career in the law would restore the family's financial fortunes. That might have been part of the father's plan, wouldn't you say? Could have been well, well have been. And also, it's interesting to note that a neighbour of Thomas Child was James Giltrap, whose daughter Josephine Giltrap, eventually Josephine Murray, was Joyce's favourite aunt. And he often got on to Aunt Josephine to provide information. Certainly before Ulysses was published, when it was in the proof stage, he got on to Aunt Josephine to provide information about various people. This is the famous Aunt Josephine, of whom he was so fond that he sent her a copy of Ulysses, and she was a bit embarrassed by possession of this radioactive material, and is reported to have said that it really wasn't fit to read. That's, that's correct. And, and he said, what was it, if it's not fit to read, life isn't fit to live. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But Joyce would have known the house down there in Bengal Terrace on account of his mm. aunt Josephine having lived there. Just inside the main gate of Glasnevin Cemetery and to the left there is a neat row of um, stones It's where clerics were buried. And there's two large mausoleums. One is to Cardinal McCabe was mentioned in Portrait of the Artist and the other is to Archbishop Walsh who's mentioned in Ulysses. And Joyce was pretty sarcastic in some of his references to these gentlemen. He was indeed. you want to quote? Well, I'll do it. (laughs) Everyone knows the Pope can't belch without the consent of Billy Welsh and of course the other unfortunate gentleman, McCabe, was known as the tub of guts up in Armagh. So uh, I suppose for a man who once entertained notions of being a priest suggests that that's another profession he really couldn't have entered in the end. I've always thought it's interesting that the funeral, the burial of Paddy Dignam, which takes up a whole chapter in Ulysses, comes quite early on. I think it's episode six, isn't that's it? That's right. It and it's, it's, it's uh, remarkable in a book that much later we'll have a scene in the maternity hospital that Joyce, in a sense, puts death before birth. But... Dignam is a man whose funeral is attended by various people, including Simon Dedalus, who's based obviously on Joyce's father. And uh, they come across Dublin, uh, all male, in the funeral carriage, which is interesting in itself. It seems as if in those days women were not exposed to the raw emotion of the graveside. They might have taken part in earlier forms of the obsequy, but not that. It's a kind of trip to the underworld, really. This is Dublin's repressed unconscious, otherwise known as a cemetery, and uh, the hero in Epic always has to encounter these moments among the dead, and that's what Bloom is doing here. Seamus Camosh is the keeper here at Glasnevin in the illustrious tradition of O'Connell, and he's going to bring us into the mortuary chapel, so we're going to hear a jangling of heavy old keys. So here we are with the keys, and these would have been the keys that John O'Connell held when the funeral came in. And we'll open up the gates into the mortuary chapel here now. Vivian, we've just stepped into the mortuary chapel, which is got a nice intimate feel to it. It's exactly the same as it was in 1904. And Vivian, I think the priest in charge was a man named Father Coffey. 
Francis Coffey. And Father Coffey, actually, he was the curate of St. Paul's Church down on Aaron Key. And he was also the acting chaplain up here in Glasnevin for a number of years, including 1904. And remember Bloom kind of thinks Father Coffey, the name reminded him of Coffin. Father Coffey. I knew his name was like a coffin. Domine nomine. Bully about the muzzle he looks. Bosses the show. Muscular Christian. Woe betide anyone that looks crooked at him. Priest. Thou art Peter. Burst sideways like a sheep in clover, Dedalus says he will, with a belly on him like a poisoned pup. Most amusing expressions that man finds. <laughs> Burst sideways. Now, Father Coffey had a great way with the birds. He used to feed the birds at the cemetery. And you knew by what gate Father Coffey went out by the trail of birds on the avenue. And if Father Coffey was busy with a lot of funerals and he didn't come out into the open, the birds would actually fly into this building here and seek him out. So he was a kind of latter-day St. Francis of <laughs> I'd the say Dublin so. area. He yeah. was well known for his love of birds. But he was supposed to be, according to Ulysses, he liked to boss the show. What about the superintendent, O'Connell? He was a very popular man, and he knew a lot of people around Dublin, and he was a great friend of John Stanislaus Joyce. And um, he was a great storyteller. And remember, he told the story in Ulysses of the two drunks who came up from the coombe on a foggy night looking for their friend Mulcahy. They were directed to the grave of Mulcahy. And they went up to him, and there was a statue of our saviour on top of the grave. And one wrong said to the other, that's not Mulcahy, whoever it is. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, Leopold Bloom had a point when he said that an Irishman's home is his coffin. <laughs> <laughs> How many? All these here once walked around Dublin, faithful departed, as you are now, so once were we. We've just left the mortuary chapel and the coffin was carried out to the right-hand side, the right-hand side door, and it comes down to the U walk. And um, it was just as they were making their way towards the grave for Paddy Dignam that they met um, Mr O'Connell, the superintendent of the cemetery. I suppose it was a good quality in someone like that to be a joker and a storyteller kind of lighten a sad occasion for people well his stories are supposed to have been legendary and yet no one felt he was disrespectful he seems to have been regarded as very good at his job no everybody liked him yeah and he was always very well turned out with nicely polished shoes and a smart frock coat mr bloom admired the caretaker's prosperous bulk all want to be on good terms with him decent fellow john o'connell real good sort keys <laughs> like Keyes' ad. No fear of anyone getting out. No pass-out checks. Habiat corpus. Vivian, <clears throat> Leopold Bloom has a rather inspired idea towards the end of the funeral. He thinks the tombstones are a little dull in their messages. Pious, worthy, but a bit dull. And he suggests that it should say on each what the person did. You know, I travelled for Cork Lino. I paid five shillings in the pound. I cook good Irish stew. What would you think of that idea? It's pragmatic, isn't it? No, I think it's a very good idea, Declan, because the more information about a person that is on the gravestone, it helps people who are doing genealogy. And, of course, he also thought it might be no harm to bury people with telephones. 
in the coffins in case a mistake had been made. Well, I think that's a good idea also. And actually up in Mount Jerome Cemetery, there's a gravestone and there's a chain and a bell. And the chain goes right into the grave. And if the person was buried alive, they could pull the chain and the bell would ring. Well, they buried ancient Irish chieftains with their treasures. They'll probably bury all the bankers with their mobile phones. <laughs> Speaking of inscriptions, there are quite a few in Latin for for Jesuits, many famous Jesuits buried here. Yeah, that's correct. Oh, if you go over to look at the Jesuit plot, um, you come across Gerard Manley Hopkins. And there's also five Jesuits there who are mentioned in Ulysses, and they include Father Conmey, who's the superior up at Gardner Street. It's Father Joseph Darlington, Dean of Studies at UCD, Father William Delaney, who's President of UCD, and Father Farley, the priest of St Francis Xavier's Church. Bloom tried to get Molly into the choir there and he spoke to Father Farley. And there was Father Richard Campbell. Remember, he's named as Lantern Jaws. He had kind of sort of a square face. My mother often told me, Vivian, that doctors bury their mistakes, but it seems a lot of doctors are actually buried here themselves. <laughs> Maybe there were other doctors' mistakes. Well, no, Andrew Horn, Sir Andrew Horn, who's mentioned in Oxen of the Sun, the House of Horn, Hollis Street. He's buried up here. He was very famous, and he'd, he he was very progressive, you know, at the time. Horn, of course, was in the National Maternity Hospital. That's right. And it had a very progressive policy in terms of. It was a lying-in hospital, wasn't it? It For was. poor women with no great material advantage could recover after childbirth and have a period of rest. And um, well-off people, or better-off people, actually had their babies at home. And Dr Horn used to go off in his carriage, maybe out to Dunleary, to deliver babies. Vivian, we're looking at the grave of John Stanislaus and Mary Joyce, James's parents, and it seems he didn't follow Leopold Bloom's prescription when he wrote the inscription. It's pretty traditional, isn't it? No, um, when his father died in 1931, Joyce actually did the wording for the grave. And as well as his mother and father, his elder brother, who died when he's only a few weeks old, he's buried here as well. And some of the other Joyce children who died when they were quite young are also buried in this grave. So it's a family plot. Um, John Stanislaus bought the grave when his eldest son, who's older than James, died. Some of the mourners at Paddy Dignam's funeral wanted to come up and pay a visit to Parnell's grave, which is here. Parnell just wanted a simple stone, and he got a simple stone. It was taken from beyond Blessington, and it was brought up, and just his name, Parnell, is on it. And there's two beautiful trees in the background and it's now called the Parnell Circle and it's kept very well. It's almost powerfully reticent, isn't mm. it? Just the word, mm. Parnell. And his friend Harrington is buried quite near as well and he's also very near John Stanislaus Joyce who's just over to the right-hand side. Of course, when Parnell died, the Joyce family, I mean, it was the downfall of Ireland. They thought it was the downfall of Ireland, the death of Parnell. The dead king. Yeah. It was one of the biggest funerals ever at the cemetery, Parnell's funeral. And when the people were, there were so many crowds, people were delayed and they took bits of ivy off the wall and stuck it in the lapels and then it was called Ivy Day. Hmm. And it was commemorated in Ivy Day in the committee room. And of course, Parnell's in Ulysses, Portrait of the Artist, Dubliners and Finnegan's Wake. And 
Mr. Bloom, if you remember, he says even Ivy Day is dying out. Mm. Although that's not strictly no, true. it's not. Because Every single year. Yes. And my grandfather permit. was on that committee for years in the 20s and 30s and 40s. I've got old copies of the Indo and Press, which, you know, describe 12 good men doing it. And he's always there as one of them. He I gave a narration, did he? He gave an oration what one year yeah. and later read. Um, do you think that people in Joyce's own time would have believed that Parnell was buried there? You know, there was a kind of folklore there's it was stones in the coffin and the That's chief right. would come again exactly yeah because it says towards the end yeah. doesn't it parnell will not come back mm-hmm. but people really believed that in 1904 they a lot did. of people yeah, they did that it's a bit like people yeah. now thinking that elvis isn't dead or that some of these great cultural figures couldn't possibly have committed the indignity of yeah. dying why do you think elvis is dead uh i think elvis may have always been dead to be honest with you <laughs> I think he died about 1957 or 8 when he was seconded into the army. <laughs> James Joyce and Me was presented by Declan Kybert and the producer was Bernadette Comerford. The readings were by Barry McGovern. The programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One.